You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. All right. Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning. If you have your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in Luke and in Matthew today. We're going to bounce, well, really not back and forth. We'll start in Luke, we'll end in Matthew. But each of the Gospels uh, present to us some unique aspects of the Christmas story, and and we don't want to miss some of those parts. And so uh, Luke and Matthew. I want to tell you a story before we begin about a uh, a gentleman by the name of Joshua Bell. Josh Bell is an uh, American violinist, world-class violinist. In fact, considered one of the best in the entire world. Uh, he plays the, for those of you who are classical uh, fanatics, he plays the Gibson X Huberman Stradivarius, uh, which is a violin that was made by uh, a man in 1713 who was regarded as like the golden age of violin making. Uh, Bell paid a uh, pedestrian $4.2 million to purchase this um, violin. He's a very big deal in the classical world. People come to his performances. They pay hundreds of dollars to see him. He plays in front of sold-out crowds and opera houses uh, all over the world. Just an amazing talent. And um, it was very interesting. Some some psychologists wanted to, to Try an experiment because there was this thought that the human brain is wired to appreciate beauty, that there's something about beauty that we are wired to uh, be drawn to, to be in awe of. And so these psychologists in 2007 conducted this experiment to test whether or not this was true. And, And what they did was they took Josh Bell and they put him in street clothes. Of course, he had his $4 million violin with him, but street clothes, a hat, and rather than putting him in a opera house, they put him in the metro. And uh, they had him open his violin case up and sit and play world-class stuff right there in the metro as passersby uh, made their way to wherever they were going. And of course, the expectation was that for someone as talented as Bell, as someone with, with this much mastery over their instrument, that people, as busy as they are, as they were going to wherever they were going, would hear the beauty in what he was doing and go, wow. And just kind of be stopped dead in their tracks. Wow, never heard anyone play anything like that before. That is amazing, right? But that's not what happened. He made $32 in tips. There were no standing ovations. There were no one stopping. In fact, the people that tipped him, they said, didn't even make eye contact with him. It was like they were embarrassed to look and just drop the money and keep going, right? Like, whoever this poor man is, he's playing a violin. Things must be very difficult for him. Uh, we just give him a few bucks. And yeah, in an hour, no one stopped, no one recognized, $32, and that was it. And that brings up an interesting truth that I think is, is very thought-provoking for the Christmas story this morning. And that is this, that we often will only recognize beauty in places that we expect to find it. So I would say that we are wired up for beauty. We like beauty. We like, we're we're, we're awestruck by beauty, but only if we expect to find beauty wherever we are. If you don't expect to find it, chances are you are not probably going to recognize it. We expect to find beauty in the opera house, but not so much the metro. 
We expect to find or experience beauty listening to a world-class musician play a $4 million violin, but not so much a street performer. In other words, we expect beauty in the highest places, not the lowest. This morning, we are going to be looking at this Christmas story, and, and what we find is that as monumental as this story is, that God became flesh and dwelled among us. A virgin conceives and bears a son, fulfilling a prophecy from 800 years ago, right? I mean, these are monumental, world-changing moments. As, as monumental as they are, we expect God to choose the highest class of people to share this news with, the ones that we would consider important, the ones that we would consider worthy, and yet God actually does the opposite. He doesn't come to the opera house. He goes to the metro, He doesn't share it with world-class musicians, but with street performers. It's the lowly that he is interested in. It's the lowly that he chooses to share this with. 1 Corinthians 1.28, Paul says that God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to to nothing the things that are. In other words, God chooses the lowly to impact the high. He chooses them because he loves them. And so I've titled this message this morning, Glory in the Highest from the Lowest. There are three groups that he chooses to share this good news with in this story. And the first is, is really just a remarkable, uh, a remarkable audience that God chooses to come to. It is the unborn, the unborn. Luke chapter 1 is where we begin. Luke's gospel is very strange because it it begins with this sort of opening to a man named Theophilus, and it's kind of like a, an author's note to his audience, and so that's fine. That's pretty normal for a, an ancient letter, but then it dives right into these two people's story, and, and we have no idea who they are. They're, they're not Mary or Joseph, so if you know anything about you know, the, the Jesus story, Mary and Joseph, we're not introduced to Mary and Joseph first. We meet these two other people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we don't have any idea who they are other than that. Zechariah was a priest. He was a Levite. He was a descendant of Aaron, so he is a, a pretty big deal as a priest in the Jewish community, and he's married to a woman named Elizabeth who is also a descendant of Aaron. So these are people that they have some religious pedigree to them, but beyond that, we really have no idea who they are. And the story begins telling us about a pregnancy with Elizabeth that is very unordinary. There's a lot of things that are very strange about this pregnancy. Uh, First, Zechariah, while he's in the temple, he's offering uh, to burn incense, and it says that an angel appears while he is burning incense. And we find out that this angel's name is Gabriel, and it surprises Zechariah. He's very scared, as most people are when they see angels in the scripture, and Gabriel calms him down, and he tells him, hey, listen, I've got great news. Your wife is going to get pregnant. Now, this is a very, by the way, just strange thing to have happen when a husband receives word from another person that his wife is going to be pregnant. <laughs> How do you know that, right? What do you mean? But, but, but Gabriel tells him, hey, yeah, she, she's going to bear a son. She's going to conceive and have a son. And, and there's some really remarkable things about him, but it's surprising to Zechariah primarily because they're both very old. Luke 1.18 says, he says, I'm an old man. My wife has advanced in years. I mean, How That window shut a long time ago. What do you mean she's going to be pregnant? So he's a little bit in disbelief, a little bit skeptical. And because of his disbelief, Gabriel 
kind of gives them a little bit of a punishment. It's, it's kind of like, a, it's not too bad, but it's, it's kind of like, hey, because of your disbelief, you're not going to be able to talk until the baby's born. <laughs> so he, he is silent from that point on. He leaves the temple. He can't speak. He can't say anything. Uh, he goes home. Elizabeth conceives, it says. And it says for the first five months after she conceives, she hides herself. So the whole thing, very unordinary, not, not a very normal pattern for a pregnancy to start. But not only that, the baby himself will be unordinary. It's an unordinary, unordinary ba- baby. Gabriel gives details regarding uh, the baby. Verse 15, it says, he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. Every Baptist loves this passage, right? Uh, lots to unpack here, but very quickly, uh, abstaining from alcohol in the ancient world was actually a very unusual thing, believe it or not. It's not a very normal practice. There were not a lot of, of people who abstained from all alcohol during this time because alcohol was used for a variety of different things. Of course, very different kind of alcohol then, not as strong, but it was used for, for all sorts of medicinal purposes. It was used for a, a whole host of things. And so this command indicates that This baby that Elizabeth is pregnant with, who will be named John, by the way, who we come to find out later is John the Baptizer, Uh, this indicates that he's going to be a Nazarite. A Nazarite is a a specific vow that people would take in the Old Testament that would set them apart, and it would bring them under a very specific and special holy kind of service to God. And oftentimes, more often than not, the Nazaritic vow was something that was meant to be just done temporarily. You would take it for for maybe a year or a couple of years. But there are some examples in scripture of people who were Nazarites for life. Right now, if you're in our life Bible study, uh, you're studying Samson, who is a Nazarite from birth. Uh, John the Baptist also is one of these individuals. In fact, in Luke 7.33, this is, this is several years later when, when Jesus and John are adults, Jesus makes a comment in, John, or in Luke 7.33 that John has continued to abstain from alcohol. So he has continued to live out this Nazarite vow in his life. But there's one other very important detail about John that is really fascinating. I mean, when you're studying scripture and, and you really slow down and you read line for line, what is unfolding? You'd really be shocked at some of the things that you see, some of the things that are written. There's really important details that you can just blow right past. But in verse 15, this is really important, it says that this baby will be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. Now that is weird. That is a weird thing, right? Like, let's just be honest about that. At this point, this is, of course, prior to the resurrection, no one is filled with the Holy Spirit. The the Holy Spirit comes, and he does his work, and he he kind of comes in and out of people in the Old Testament, but, but there's never been an instance where a baby that has not even been born yet is filled with the Holy Spirit. So this should tell you something is unordinary about this baby. This means something. We're going to see this again somewhere. This is going to make its, its way into something else. God isn't just doing this for no reason. There's purpose here. There's intentionality here. Something's going on. So there's, there's, there's an unordinary pregnancy. There's an unordinary baby. And then, right as you're getting into like, okay, we're kind of getting to know who Elizabeth and Zechariah are, the story just comes to a halt. He leaves the temple. He's unable to speak. Verse 24, it says, After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. And then that's it. And that's all we're left with. And at this point we have no idea how Zechariah and Elizabeth fit into the the Jesus story. We just know that there's some unordinary stuff happening. And then Luke changes gears and he moves to the actual conception of Jesus. We're introduced to another young woman by the name of Mary. 
And Gabriel comes back onto the scene, the angel, he comes to see her. And in verse 26, it says, in the sixth month, and that might make you pause and leave us wondering, sixth month of what? The sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So we're tying Elizabeth to Mary now. Mary is visited by Gabriel. She's told that you are going to have a son, and you are going to call him Jesus and he's going to be mighty and people, he's going to turn the hearts of Israel and and there's going to be all kinds of wonderful things. And Mary is like both, I think, very blessed by this. Like, wow, I can't believe God chose me and also very perplexed because she's like, how is that going to work? Because I'm a virgin and I'm not even married yet. And Gabriel answers in verse 35. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. Now, for further proof, because this is a bold claim. I mean, it's an, he, Gabriel's an angel. She's, she's, not, she's, this, she's not unaware of that. So this is a supernatural moment. But it's still a pretty big claim, right? It would, it would still be hard to wrap your mind around that. And so Gabriel, in order to give her more evidence, more proof that what he's saying is true, he says in verse 36 and 37, Behold, your relative Elizabeth. Now pause. It all makes sense now, right? Mary and Elizabeth are family. We get that now. We don't get that up front. That would have been helpful if Luke had given that to us, but now we know they're family. He says, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. So we find out some details here. Number one, of course, Mary and Elizabeth are family. But number two, Elizabeth is known as barren. She has been called barren. She's known by people as barren. She can't have kids. And now she's past the childbearing age anyways. And so the idea of her being pregnant is crazy, right? Very hard to believe. And and, and this is why I, I love this aspect of the story. This is a little bit of a side note, but I think it's a really important side note because I suspect there are a lot of people who struggle with this. This part of the story shows how faith and doubt interact with one another. Mary is a very faithful woman. There's no question about that. Verse 38, I mean, she responds and says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She is fully ready to embrace this destiny. She's fully ready to to be obedient to what the angel said is going to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and you're going to conceive the Son of God. She doesn't really understand what that means, but she's like, Lord, I'm yours. I'm ready. I'm obedient. I've got faith. And yet... As soon as Gabriel leaves, she immediately gets up, it says, with haste to go see Elizabeth. Why? She's like, yes, I believe you, Lord. I will be the servant. Now, where is Elizabeth? I got to see if this is true. I got to find out if this is real. She's got faith, but she's maybe just a little bit curious. She's got a little bit of doubt maybe, right? And, And that brings up a really great point that faith and doubt are not mutually exclusive. Let me give you a truth. Faith is not the absence of doubt, it's the answer to it. Faith is not the absence of doubt, it's the answer to it. What is faith? Taking God at his word, right. Whenever I take God at his word, it doesn't mean that all the questions I have go away. It means that eventually, if I will follow God, if I will take him at his word and take step by step, day by day with him, eventually all of my questions do get answered, either now in this life or in eternity, when as Paul says, I will know all things even as I have been known fully. At some point, my questions will be answered. 
It's just a matter of when. So it doesn't mean that if you have doubt, you're somehow disqualified from faith. They're not mutually exclusive to one another. People have this idea that like, well, I'm not a very good Christian because I have, I have some doubts, I have some concerns, I'm maybe skeptical about some things. That, that doesn't denigrate your faith. That just furthers the need for it. And if you will continue walking in faith those doubts will become a little bit more clear for you. Now, all of this, this whole thing, these whole events set up this next scene that I think is so important and pertinent to exactly what we're talking about here this morning. When Mary visits Elizabeth, because she gets up, she with haste goes to see Elizabeth. When Mary visits Elizabeth, there are two things going on. One, no one knows that Mary is pregnant. No one has any idea. This is, she left as soon as, soon as Gabriel left. She hasn't even told Joseph yet. We find out that she tells Joseph later in Matthew's gospel. But no one knows. She's the only person. And secondly, no one knows that Elizabeth is pregnant, except for Zechariah, who can't tell anyone. <laughs> and now Mary, who has been told by Gabriel. So there, there's no way anyone else knows what's going on. And Mary walks in the door, she gets to Elizabeth's place, she walks into the door, she greets Elizabeth, hey Elizabeth, where are you? I'm here, come let me see you. Are you wearing a tight-fitting shirt? Come here, let me see what's going on. <laughs> Verse 41, it says, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. So who's the first person to respond to the conception of Jesus? John, an unborn baby. Understand the intentionality of this. Understand this is not just a side detail that is just sort of whatever. Luke is building to this moment. He has given you clues up to this point that this matters, that this is an, a big deal. There's divine purpose in this. He goes to the trouble of giving you the information about John the baby and the unordinary circumstances. And the parents are old, and he's going to be a Nazarite, and he's going to turn the hearts of the Israel to the Lord. And the baby is filled with the Holy Spirit. Why would a baby be filled with the Holy Spirit? Because through the Holy Spirit, baby John will recognize baby Jesus before Jesus is ever born. God chooses the lowly unborn to announce the conception of God the Son. That's amazing. Now, I don't think, and maybe I'm wrong. I'm usually wrong. I don't think that I should have to say anything else for you to get a clear picture of how God feels about the unborn. There's so much discussion and there's so much debate over, you know, can a Christian be pro-life or pro-choice? And, and I would ask, if you're in that second category, I would honestly ask you, this is not to be, like, contentious. This is just a, a, a good question. How do you read this text? How do you read this passage of Scripture? How do you read this and think, well, but it's just a fetus, not a baby? Honestly, how do you read this? And when Mary greeted Elizabeth, the small clump of cells in her uterus, filled with the Holy Spirit, leapt with lifeless joy... Why would a small clump of cells be filled with the Holy Spirit? You are lying to yourself if you think there is any sensible biblical argument for a Christian to be pro-choice. You've been deceived. Either that or you're unwilling to just, you're unwilling to, to stand on that truth because you know that it will make people in your life mad. And, and listen, this is what the Scripture teaches. 
This is, honestly, I think probably the most compelling story with regard to how God feels about life in the womb. It's life enough to fill it with Holy Spirit. God loves the unborn, and so should we. They are helpless. They aren't capable of caring for themselves. They are in need of others' care. They are dependent on it. They have no voice. They can never speak for themselves. They have no power. They have no wealth. They have no privilege. They are the lowly of the world in every truest sense of the word, and yet God gives an unborn baby his Holy Spirit so that that unborn baby might recognize Jesus in the womb and leap with joy in his presence. Glory and the highest from the lowest. Are we having fun yet? God chose the unborn. Secondly, he chooses the unwanted. Move into Luke 2. We get to the birth of Jesus now. And and verse 1 tells us there's a decree that has gone out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world has to be registered. This is such a Roman way of thinking. As if the whole world is under Caesar's control, right? Uh, but, But the whole world needs to be registered. And so... Joseph now takes a very pregnant Mary, and they leave where they were living, which is in a place called Nazareth in Galilee, and they travel to another place called Bethlehem, which is in Judea. And while they are there, Mary, of course, as you might expect, goes into labor, right? It it had to happen. So usually when we read the Christmas story, Mary and Joseph are painted in the unwanted category. You'll see that like they, they show up, Mary goes into labor, uh, they need to find a, a motel. You know, there's no like hospitals at that point. So we need an inn, we need a motel. And so they go and knock on the door, the innkeeper comes out and he's like, look, her water broke and she's about to go into labor. And he's like, sorry, there's, there's no, and, and you, you know, everyone hates on the innkeeper because it's like, what kind of cold hearted dude would just send a woman in labor back out, go to that barn over there. It just is a very weird story. And so they're kind of cast into this unwanted category. And, and I would submit to you, that's, that's not a good reading of the Christmas story at all. It, it misses some really key details, and it misunderstands some really key words. Uh, Mary was not unwanted. She was chosen by God. We just learned that in chapter 1. Um, the word in in your Bible, I don't have a lot of time to really unpack this, but I have to say it because it's, it's just, it bears mentioning every time we're in this passage. The word in in your Bible in Luke, it's a Greek word, kataluma, And it's a word that is more often than not just used to mean a guest room. It's just a guest room. So uh, I have a picture to show you on the screen of of what an ancient uh, Israelite house would have looked at. And you'll notice that, uh, are we going to see it? There it is. Wait, it's coming. We'll let them figure that out. Um, There it is. There it is. You'll notice that on the living quarters are all at top, right? Um, you have the main area, and then off to uh, the side, you have the kataluma, the guest room. It was very common in the ancient world uh, for you to take in travelers, people who were on the road, merchants, just wanderers. This is why you're told to care for uh, people who are in need, because people were often in need in the ancient world. You couldn't just go from like, you know, Dallas to Fort Worth in 30 minutes. It was like three days. And so you had to rely on people as you were traveling at night to be sheltered somewhere. 
And we just learned that there's a decree that has gone out that everyone should be registered. And so Joseph takes Mary to his family home in Bethlehem because he's from the city of David. Bethlehem is the city of David. So he's visiting family. This is the family home. And the rest of his family has come as well. And so the, the house is likely very packed. It's, it, there's tons of people there. And so when Mary goes into labor, there's not enough room for her to both be in labor and for the rest of the family to be there. They would have had to got rid of everyone so that she had her own private space and, and space to give birth. And so instead of moving everyone out and displacing everyone, what they did was they brought her down. The picture's gone. They brought her down to the bottom level to a area where you would keep the livestock in the courtyard and in the kind of barn area, which you would have called a manger. And there would have been a feeding trough in there. That's why you would call it the manger. It's the same exact thing. And so there in the first level of Joseph's family home, Jesus is born. She's not just off in some barn in the middle. I mean, does anyone ever ask what barn is it that she's in? Just some random place out in the middle of the field. There, there's never any, and the innkeeper, you know, you, you, you hear, you see him kind of depicted in these stories. There's no, there's no even mention of an innkeeper. There, there's no innkeeper ever recorded in Luke's gospel. Uh, Luke 2.7, it says that, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn or the guest room. Now, does that change a little bit the way you've understood that story? Yeah, it's a little different. It's a little different. It's amazing. Now, in Luke 10, just as a side note, Luke 10, we get the, the story of the Good Samaritan who uh, takes the man who is, is badly beaten up and uh, puts ointment on him and bandages him up, and it, he says it takes him to an inn. Remember that? And he pays the innkeeper for a couple nights. That is a totally different word in the Greek. That's the word pandakion, uh, which means an actual inn. A motel. This, Kataluma, is just a guest room. Something else happens this night. Really fascinating. Verse 8, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. These are the unwanted of society at this time. In the ancient world, shepherds were not people you ever really wanted to be around. They were the rejects. They were the trash of society. Jewish history calls them dishonest, and unclean according to the law. These were not people that you ever wanted to associate with, and yet God chooses them this night to be a part of this amazing once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-human-history moment. The angel of the Lord appears to them. Verse 11, it says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This angel comes to them. They are, by the way, terrified as well. Angels are terrifying. I'm just going to keep saying that. Every time you see them, people are scared. Uh, <clears throat> this is the first birth announcement ever recorded. Ever recorded. So in, in our modern uh, day, uh, when a baby is born, you might have a photographer take a picture of your baby and make little announcement cards. Or of course now, really now, it's just you just post it on social media, right? That's, that's kind of the go-to. But... You don't post it on social media until what? Until you send it to mom and dad, if mom and dad are not there, or brother and sister, or people in your family. There's like an order of things, right? You don't put it on social media and mom find out on social media. <laughs> there's, there's an announcement process that takes place here. And so, that, again, that furthers the emphasis being put on these shepherds. These are the first people to find out. These are the first people God comes to and says, hey, Jesus is being born, the Savior, the Messiah, the one that, you know, we've been talking about for 2,000 years. He's come. He's here. 
You're the first to know, right? He comes to them. He thinks, who can I find? What people are most despised in this culture? The shepherds. Where are the shepherds at? I'll go find them. I'll tell them first. But it gets better. After the angel comes to the shepherds and tells them this, I mean, they're still wrapping their minds around this. Oh, my gosh, the the Messiah is here. Christ is born. It says that more angels appear, and they see what no one else sees that night, this huge, angelic, heavenly worship service. Verse 13 says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And at this point, they're awestruck. They cannot believe what has happened. Oh, my Lord, Jesus is born, and we just saw these angels, and this is crazy. Is this real? We better go find out. Right? Again, faith and doubt. And it says exactly the same thing that it said for Mary. They immediately left with haste because they wanted to see if what the angels said was true. They were curious. They had faith. They were going. They took God at his word. We're going. We're going to go find him. But, we're, but we got a little doubt. This is an insane story. This is a crazy moment. But they end up finding Jesus. Verse 20, it says, The shepherds returned, and they glorified and praised God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. This whole night, this whole moment changes them. Changes them radically. The, the way the night began, they were, they were outcasts. They were rejects. They were the dregs of society. They have this insane moment. And then they go and they see the Savior clothed in flesh. And it radically changes them. And they leave different than they were when they came. This, folks, is what God does. This is the business that he is in. He finds unwanted people and he changes them and then those people become his witness to the world. This is not the only time we see this in the scripture. This happens over and over and over again throughout all of scripture. King David, great example. King David. Who was King David? He was a shepherd, actually, ironically. And he was the last on the list. When, when Samuel comes to Jesse to find a king, he's like, let me see your sons. Not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one. He had a lot of sons. Not that one, not that one. And he's like, there's got to be more. Where are they? Where is he? And they're like, well, there's David, but I didn't even bring him because he's out in the feast, just little David. I want him. Bring little David up. That's my guy. Right? And he becomes the greatest king in Israel, the greatest king in Jewish history and actually becomes a type of Christ that predicts what Jesus is going to be like. What about the prophets? Most of them were unwanted, both before their profession and certainly in their profession. No one wanted prophets around. That guy is not welcome here. I don't want to hear a word he has to say because he's going to tell me things that I don't want to hear. But even before that, Amos, a shepherd, strangely enough, a sheep herder. What about the disciples? They were definitely the unwanted No one wanted them. In Jewish culture, this is how it worked. If you were a young boy, you would be taught the Torah, religiously, pun intended, uh, over and over and over again, such that by the time you were 10 or 11, you should have had most of it memorized. And, and, And what would happen is at an early age, rabbis would come along, they would look at the brightest and the most gifted and talented young boys that they would take And those boys would take the yoke of that rabbi. This is why Jesus says that he talks about his yoke, 
take my yoke upon you. It's rabbinic terminology. They would take the yoke of that rabbi and they would begin to follow that rabbi as his disciples and they would learn to become rabbis themselves. But not all the boys were chosen, only the most gifted and the most talented. What happened to all the other boys? They took on their father's professions like fishing and tax collecting and all of the things that the disciples were doing when Jesus calls them. He's like, hey, where are the rejects? Where are the ones that the other rabbis didn't want? Yeah, you, over idiots, come over here. I want you, you're going to be on my team, and we're going to win. It's insane. It makes no sense. Why would God do it? But this is what he does. And ultimately, this is what I want you to get. This is what he does with the church. We are unwanted. We are unwanted. We are castaways. We are rejects. This is not what he... The world despises us. What does Jesus say in John 15, 18? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. But the world will hate you, and you will be rejected. This is God's grand plan to take the unwanted people of the world, empower them with his spirit, forgive them of their sins, and then send them out to wage war against Satan's sin and death with the gospel in hand. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were noble of birth. I mean, listen to what Paul is saying here. It's kind of a low-key, like, shot at them, right? Not many of you were wise. You're a bunch of idiots. Not many of you were powerful. You're a bunch of weaklings. Not many of you were of noble birth. You're a bunch of nobodies. And he's saying the church, that's what we're made of, weak Dumb nobodies. And then look at verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. It wouldn't be impressive if God came along and took the best of the best, the popular, the noble, the powerful. Of course they're going to succeed. But what if God chose the unwanted? What if God picked the ones that no one else wanted? What if he took, what if he took the addicts? What if he took the sex addicts and the drug addicts and the alcoholics? What if he took the broken and the poor and the messed up, people with failing marriages, the people with with broken relationships? What if he was like, hey, I, I want all that group. The world would go, well, what could they possibly do? They have no power. They have no ability to change. And God says, you're right. They have no power. They can't do anything. And I am going to do everything through them. Yeah. One of the greatest joys that I have as pastor of this church, and people ask me all the time, you know, it's not uncommon for pastors to to stay in a place and then like kind of jump around and go to a different place. And people always say, like, how long do you think you'll be at City on a Hill? I say, I hope forever. I would never want to leave here. One of the greatest joys that I have here is that I can say with integrity when people ask me, we welcome the unwanted here. We want the unwanted. The sex addict? I'm just being honest with you, man. Not many churches know what to do with you. When you come to them, not many churches know what to do with you. They're like, oh, you struggle with what? Oh, okay. Well, we'll, we'll pray for you, and, and you, uh, uh, what, where can we put him? The alcoholic? You ruined your family? You're, you're not really wanted in most churches. Just being honest. Not, not many churches are looking to bring you in. They're like, yeah, he's back. Great. (laughs) Sex offenders, you're definitely not wanted in most churches. But you listen to me. 
we want you. We want you here. And you know why? Because Jesus wants you. Because Jesus calls you. And if you're good enough for Jesus, you're good enough for City on a Hill. I've heard it said so many times, so many of you, when you came to us, you were seen by your friends and your family as a failure. You were at the bottom, and you came in, and you were nervous when you came to church for the first time. You didn't even want to make eye contact. You're like, why in the world would a church ever welcome someone like me? You want to know why? Because Jesus welcomes you. Because Jesus came in the flesh as a baby born in a manger in Bethlehem so that he could grow up and die for you. And now he's calling you, and he wants to begin his work through you that you could reach other dumb, weak nobodies like yourself. The question is, do you believe it? Your biggest hurdle, let me just tell you, your biggest hurdle is not the things that you perceive dragging you down. Your biggest hurdle is believing that God can overcome them and use you in spite of it. If you can believe that, if you can wrap your mind around that, God will use you. The shepherds believed it, and it changed them. Try something for me next Sunday. Try the, or if you're in next service, try this next service. When we begin worship next Sunday, okay, which means you got to get here on time, when we begin worship next Sunday, <laughs> shots fired, I want you, when the music starts up, to look around this room while everybody is singing. Don't be awkward, but look around the room. <laughs> right, don't do that. Look around the room, and do you know what you will see as people are singing? You will see a room full of men and women with broken pasts, messed up marriages, severed relationships, battling their addictions, and a whole host of other problems. And do you know what you will be seeing in all of that? Glory and the highest from the lowest. Glory and the highest from the lowest. We are not high church. We are not glory in the highest from the highest. Get me out of there. You can't trust anyone there. Glory in the highest from the lowest. He chooses those who can't defend themselves, who depend upon others to speak up for them, the unborn. He chooses those who have been rejected and cast aside, the unwanted. Last, we'll end here. He chooses the unclean. And we move from Luke's gospel to Matthew's gospel, and this is yet another group included, albeit much later, in the birth story. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So we have wise men. Now, before we go any further, what do we know about these guys? What do we know? Because these are interesting characters in the scripture. What do we know about the wise men? Number one, crucially, there is no number specified. How many wise men were there? The three wise men, right? Yeah, no, it doesn't say that. It's just wise men, plural. It could have been 25 wise men. It could have. So for all of you who are doing the nativity scene... You need 22 more cutouts. I don't know. We don't know how many there were. I'm just saying, if you want to be, you know. And, and by the way, they shouldn't be in the nativity. They weren't there at the birth, the birth of Jesus. We think this happened probably a year later. So uh, just for what it's worth, um, tradition tells us three, probably because of the gifts, there are three gifts that are specified, frankincense, myrrh, and gold. And so that is traditionally where we get the three idea. But it's just in the plural in the Greek text. Number two, they were not Jews. 
This is a big, a big important one. They were not Jews. It says wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They were unclean Gentiles. These were not just the unwanted people of society. These were the people that society completely rejected. You weren't even allowed to be around. Now, we believe that they were actually from Babylon. Uh, we actually believe that this group, it's it, the word uh, magos in Greek, it's a, a word that, that means something like a sage who is an expert in astrology, interpretation of dreams, and various other secret arts, likely from Babylon. This is the direct definition that we get out of uh, one of the, the top-level scholarship um, sources. We believe that these guys were actually the ones in Daniel, in the book of Daniel. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar has this strange dream, and uh, he's very puzzled by it. And before he calls on Daniel, he calls on the court magicians and the astrologers to come. This cohort of individuals, we believe, were the magi. They were in Babylon. This is where they're from. Uh, it's, it's very similar. And so it makes sense why they would have any awareness of who the king of the Jews even is. Because uh, during Daniel's time, of course, they were likely influenced by Daniel, a Jew, uh, as well as uh, the three amigos, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Later, uh, we have Persian kings who are influenced by the likes of Nehemiah. Of course, Persia conquers Babylon. And so there's lots of, there's lots of places in history where Jewish theology would have at least been made known to this group of individuals. But this group of people were unclean. And the fact that they're experts in astrology is a really important detail. Because how do they find Jesus? A star, right. A star rises. Matthew 2, 2, it says, For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So that's, that's strange in and of itself. We'll get to that in a minute. So they come to Jerusalem. They're, they're looking for the king of the Jews because they saw the star rose. Uh, they're asking around. They are actually directed to Bethlehem in Judea by none other than King Herod, who ironically wants Jesus dead and is using them as a pawn. He fails in that respect. But they continue to Bethlehem to this house. They follow the star. The star continues to move until it, it ends up directly over this house, not motel. Again, important detail. And, and they, they show up, verse 11, it says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Very valuable gifts, by the way, and very specific to Jewish worship. They knew what they were doing. They knew what they were going, uh, going there with. Frankincense and myrrh were fragrant offerings often used in Jewish worship. Gold, of course, a valuable commodity then and even now. But, but notice this. This is a really fascinating part of the text. And we always emphasize the gifts, don't we? We always talk about them bringing the gifts, bringing the presents, right? But, but notice what it says right before that. It says they fell down. They saw the child and they fell down and worshiped him. Now, check this out. Believe it or not, this is the first ever recorded worship of Jesus in the flesh, in the Bible. First time ever. It's never, nothing happens before this. And who is it that's doing this? Gentiles. Unclean Gentiles. Now, this seems shocking, right? I mean, it's like, wait a minute. We know that Gentiles are eventually included in in all of this, but that's because the Jews reject and crucify Jesus. That doesn't happen until way later. Jesus is just a baby here. So, so how is this, why are they included? I will tell you, it's because they have always been included. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, uh, we learn of a man named Abraham. And uh, Abram, Abram at the time is called by God to go and, and follow him, go to the land, and, and he's going to bless him and, and do all these things. And one of the things he says in Genesis 12 too, he says, I will make of you a great nation 
and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That is talking about Israel there. I am going to make you, Abram, into a nation and that nation will be Israel, you're going to have a son named Isaac. Isaac's going to have a son named Jacob. Jacob's going to get in this trippy wrestling match with an angel and change his name at the end of it to Israel. And his 12 sons, the 12 sons of Israel, become the 12 tribes of Israel. And boom, the nation is born. Amazing. But then look at verse 3. God says, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And check this out. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We're not talking about Israel anymore. We're talking about the whole world at this point. Every nation will be blessed by you. Every nation is the mission for God. We get to Moses, Exodus 9, 16. God says, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in Israel. No, in all of the earth. Again, the mission is everyone, all of them. We see it in the Psalms, Psalm 86, 9. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. We see it in the prophets, Hosea 2.23. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they will say you are my God. You see, God's plan all along was to include even the unclean, even the Gentiles. And he demonstrates it by, in this moment when Jesus is born, the very first people who worship him are none other than the Gentiles. All throughout the Gospels, this is amazing. What you're going to see in Matthew and Luke is Gentiles, sinners, tax collectors, and even demons are going to recognize Jesus for who he really is. They all get him right. Who are the only ones that get him wrong? His own people, the Jews. The Gentiles were always a part of the mission. God chooses the unclean. Can you see in this story how God uses the most unlikely people to accomplish his purposes? He goes after the lowly and the rejected and the castaways. And, and so I just want to wrap this up by saying to you, I don't know where you're coming from this morning or, or, or what season or stage of life that you're in. Maybe you think that you need to clean yourself up before God will have anything to do with you. Or, man, i got to get myself right. Or i got to start making better choices. Or i got to do this. Or i got to do that before God will love me or ex- accept me or, or welcome me. Or, or before I could ever be seen as someone that, that should even be welcomed in the church. And, and I, I just need to get my life together before any of this will happen. And the Christmas story reminds us that you can't get your life together. That you've never been able to get your life together. That's why Jesus came in the flesh to begin with. But beyond that, it doesn't matter that you can't get your life together because even in your mess, God has come for you anyways. That while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. That's what Paul says in Romans. He chooses the metro, not the opera house. He chooses the street performer, not the world-class musician. He, he prefers in worship glory in the highest from the lowest. So I say to you, if you are indeed the lowest, and spoiler alert, you are. Because we all are. Will you bow and worship him 
Will you take him at his word and will you allow him to do his work in your life right now? Not tomorrow, not next week, not when you finally take a freedom group, not when you finally get over this or finally conquer that. Now. Will you allow it? He chooses people just like you. Will you respond in faith? It might be mixed with a little bit of doubt. That's okay. Come anyways. Take him at his word. Glory in the highest from the lowest. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you are a God that, that, doesn't, that doesn't even see past our imperfections. You just see our imperfections. And you say, that's the one. That, that's who I'm going to redeem. It's not that you see potential in us in spite of our problems. You just, you just see us for who we are as broken people. There is no potential in us apart from you. You are our potential. We confess that. And we know that, that often our biggest hurdle is just taking you at your word that you'll use us anyways. And, and so, Lord, I just pray for like a, a profound amount of faith this morning for your people. As this Christmas season ramps up and, and as it just continues to get busier and busier and, and the schedule becomes more and more dominating and the stress piles on and all of the, all of the emotions start to fly, God, I, I pray that you would remind your people of this really profoundly important detail in the Christmas story, that you come for the lowly. And so help us, Lord, help us walk in that. Help us find comfort in that and and stop trying to be anything more than just who we are and allow you to do your work, the, the work that only you can carry out by the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And just let us glorify you in this broken state, knowing that one day we will be made whole. How we love you, how we honor you, and we thank you that you became one of us, that we might live forever with you. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Bless you. Um, I want to uh, let you know that, I don't know what my wife was doing there, but she... uh, it's a busy season. She, she doesn't sleep well. She's, you know. We do have uh, next service, a really special service. And so if you have any interest in being around to see the kids sing, uh, there's going to be some fun things. And then Pastor Emma has some really important stuff to say as well. I hope that you will, uh, some of you will join us. If not, make way, make room for the next set of victims. God bless you. And hey, Merry Christmas. Hopefully see you on Christmas Eve.